Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of RM Sotheby's Car Show. And you are watching me or listening to me from a bunker, a vast bunker in the middle of Paris. And somewhere up there is the Mona Lisa hanging on a wall because we are underneath the Louvre. It's an amazing location. And we've got about a hundred cars, just under, but an incredible collection that are gonna be going under the hammer in a couple of hours from now. And in this episode, what we've decided to do is take a slightly different tack. We had the opportunity to catch up with Johnny Fowle. He's the whiskey expert, the head of whiskey for Sotheby's. And what's really interesting is that there is quite a lot of synergy between whiskey making and whiskey manufacturers and the automotive world. And we chatted through some of that. You'll be spectacularly amazed by some of the prices that whiskey commands. And I think you'll learn more about whiskey in this episode, if you didn't know anything beforehand, then you probably learned in the last few years. It's really, really interesting. So please tune in and thanks for joining us. Now we're at a car auction, we're in Paris, we're surrounded by cars. We're in a kind of a little enclave in the middle of the hall here, which is a Southern's enclave rather than an RM Southern's enclave. And we've got watches and we've got all sorts of things like that. You can't keep your eye off the handbags though, can you? I, I like a handbag. I do like a handbag on the right, you know, day of the week, uh, Sundays. Uh, but watches we've talked about a bit on this podcast because there's there are watch brands that have really aligned themselves with the car world. It could be motor racing, or it could be um, just you know working with car brands, and 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 there's a huge crossover between people that love watches and the people that love cars. And in fact. If you pick up a car magazine, they don't often tackle a topic that is not car related, but they will quite often devote two or three pages to watches. But although we can't talk about any kind of mechanical nature to to, to whiskey, there is nevertheless kind of a, a bit of a synergy between the car world and, and alcohol, but it, but in particular whiskey. Yeah, I mean, so whiskey right now you're seeing this sort of generation of uh, high, high value whiskies. So we're talking £100,000 or $100,000 plus. And in this area of the market, you're seeing quite a lot of car and whiskey crossovers. Um, the perfect example, I guess, for us, in fact, the first one that we ever worked on was um, with Beaumont and Aston Martin. Um, there'll be another one this year in 2023, but we sold a bottle of, it's called the Beaumont DB5. And it was an old, uh, it's called Black Beaumont. It's an old liquid that was released in 1995. It was the third release of the Black Beaumont. They rebottled it uh, and they went through this agency called um, Burgess Studios, who they were involved in how do you put together a, um, you know, a car and whiskey collaboration. And when they went to the Aston um, factory, they found these old DB5 pistons and they repurposed the DB5 piston, so they molded the glass onto the piston and they filled from the top, so the bottle is half glass, half piston, and that was your first wow, okay. Aston Martin um, and Beaumont wow, crossover. Nope, first I've heard of that. It's very cool, fantastic. yeah, we sold really one. They, were about, they go for about 100,000 USD, maybe just a little bit over now. You, you, you can use a piston today. out of one of your cars, they've all got holes in, haven't they, Pete? Yeah, are racing <laughs> endeavors. Yeah, leaking out, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how many? How many did they how make? How many bottles did they make? I, good question. I think it was sixty. Okay. Um, but it was so the original, the Black Beaumont. Originally, there were three thousand of them back in nineteen ninety five. Um, but a lot have been drunk since then, so there's not too many. And they used the bottles that they had in the archives, so they probably had about 
you know, maybe maybe 80 bottles in the archive and they took 60 and they used it for this purpose. I guess there's not an easy answer to that. But I mean, where do you think the market is for one of those? I mean, do you, do you think that that's just a diehard whiskey collector that's after a very rare bottle? Or are you selling them to people that are like diehard Aston Martin fans? Or, or where do you think the market is? It could be any of those, I guess. I, I think generally these do tend to sell, I mean, particularly when we sell in, in the secondary market or via auction, they tend to sell to people who like whiskey anyway. So we find that any whiskey collaboration with another category, it, it benefits the brand in terms of the, you know, the exposure it gets because you tend to get broader press coverage because you'll cover you know, two different markets. But for us, we do find that it's more—it's more often than not the whiskey fans. Because I think if you, you know, if you go up to a car enthusiast and you say, "Do you want to buy this whiskey for a hundred thousand pounds or a hundred thousand dollars?" It seems a lot of money if you're not used to, you know, what the price point in whiskey normally is. Because I mean, for a whiskey fan, a hundred thousand is not—I mean, it's not an enormous amount, really. I know, it, I, and I'm—I'm I'm actually struggling to get my head around it because yeah. I, I, you know, it's not a market that I'm into. Peter's almost certainly never well, spent yeah. more than 30 quid on a bottle of whiskey. Well, no, but others have for me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the point, not you. Um, but I, th I, I think the point is, though, when you, do put, when you do put that into context with wine, for example, I mean, it's very easy to go to a restaurant and spend, I wouldn't do this, but £1,000 on a bottle of wine, even £10,000 on a bottle of wine. And the drinkability and the length of time that that's in the bottle and stays on the table or on the cabinet is is very different to whiskey so over over you know a period of time the enjoyment that at least bang for the buck i guess is a bit stronger with when whiskey. did you last go to pizza express and see a bottle of wine for ten thousand pounds we're in different places that's what i think saying. i think what's interesting though johnny is when you um we talk a lot between watches, even art, and the other sort of connected categories that we have between the RM Sotheby's side of the business and the main auction business Sotheby's. Um, and it's about storytelling. And as you say, with that sort of combination of the Aston Martin DB5 piston and the glass, it, 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 it's creating stories mm. for people. And I think that's as, as much about the heritage of the whiskey, the process. I'm sure you'll be telling us lots about all of that. Mm. but. Um, you are building those those lovely connections that people can recount and yeah. enjoy telling. I think there's also, especially in whiskey, there's the home of whiskey, i.e., Scotland, and particularly the distillery homes, you know, dotted around normally in pretty um, you know remote places in the country. It's all about trying to you know have people have a sense of of place with the whiskey, and so they, I think if you have a brand association, it helps you just tie it to another place you know so if it's Aston it becomes quintessentially very British um, same with McAllen of linked with Bentley it becomes this quintessentially British product and Glen Turret and Jaguar um, the other thing that Beaumont did very well actually was at, if you go to their distillery so I mean a huge part of whiskey sales is the footfall you get through your distillery if you go to Beaumont they have a DB5 which is um, it's a one of one exclusive to Beaumont distillery and it has a, a place in the back that stores some whiskey you know it's like a modded boot where you can store you know your bottles of whiskey so if you go to the distillery you can go and drive this car and have a you know the roads on Isla are pretty good fun to drive you can you know rattle up and down the island and then you know when you're finished go and park back up at the distillery and bring the whiskey out of the boot and have a you know have a have a dram which is pretty cool after you've done the driving not yeah you have to do it after well, yeah. I mean that's an interesting point though because I mean if you go back we were talking about Formula One sponsorship earlier and the cigarette brands that are no mm. longer allowed to be on mainstream TV mm. and mm. sponsor Formula One cars to discourage people from cigarette smoking 
Uh, is, has that not had a similar um, impact? Jo Johnny Walker's all over Merseyside. Well, it well, was. This, all over it, it, it was in 2019, right? Yeah. It's interesting how the ASA, the Advertising Standards Authorities, haven't really paid that much attention. But I guess they are just brand associations. They're not saying, okay, we are um, promoting um, yeah. whiskey on the side of a brand new Aston Martin. But there is, right. there's clearly a link and an association with drinking and driving. Yeah, it's actually funny because that, I guess that particular association is probably quite, it's a bit of a tightrope to walk, isn't it? Because you, you can't exactly promote drinking and driving together yeah, yeah. despite them being intrinsically yeah. linked in those products. Uh, yeah, I, there are certain rules about advertising for spirits, um, but and I think they change from region to region. So it's quite hard to take something like the F1, which you know obviously exists all over the world, and say, you know, you have to, you know, you have to apply the the blanket blanket laws across every region that they, you know, that they go through. So I think it does get a little bit complicated. Um, but we don't seem to have been so affected by the advertising, mm. you know, not no. the same way that cigarettes are. And J Johnny Walker's uh, an interesting brand in so much, of course, that is the uh, Rob Walker, yeah, yeah. Ver ver very famous uh, team owner. Uh, it was kind of g garage owner, team owner, but but is best known for uh, running some fantastic and uh, Formula One cars and sports cars, but very, very successfully. So he would, as a privateer, he would enter cars in Grand Prix and quite often beat the factory teams. And famously, he gave uh, a lot of drives to Sterling Moss. So the mm. whole Rob Walker um, motorsport thing is, 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 is a big part of uh, motorsport heritage. Very and distinctive and simple livery as well, weren't yeah, they? And the, blue cars, with, the blue, blue with the white blue, nose. Blue with uh, the white, white band stripe around and, the nose. And um, uh, funny enough, based in a, a town I know quite well called Dorking in Surrey, but uh, all came from Johnny Walker, um, uh, you know, family well, money. Well, I, th I, think, I, I think the messaging, it, it, it's central as well. It's connoisseurship, isn't it? Ultimately, if you're a connoisseur of life from multiple different things, you drive a, a nice collectible car that you enjoy, you're the type of person, male or female, that we would like to be drinking our whiskey as well. And it's that you know, association that comes with it. Mm. But I guess that's, that's at one level, but the type of level we're talking about in, in the sort of whiskies that Sotheby's are selling is a whole different genre because obviously yeah. there's a price point difference, but also uh, I guess um, a, a much higher level of connoisseurship and mm. understanding of the product and the process. Yeah, and that tends to change depending on where in the world we are. So, I mean, interestingly, Paris, where we are now, we had our first uh, ever auction in Paris of whiskey last year, and the average lot price was 80,000 euros, uh, which gives you an idea of, you know, that's kind of the, the realm in which we, we dwell when it comes to whiskey. Um, and the connoisseurship, I think, it does, it does change from place to place. In the US, people tend to favor a lower value whiskey in general. Um, I think our average value of a lot in the US is about 3,000, oh, sorry, 4,000 USD. So it tends to be a lot more voluminous and people are slightly less particular about what they collect. And as you travel east, it tends to, you know, the value tends to increase. And, and going back to the Aston Martin partnership, uh, we had a, uh, a, a discussion yesterday, didn't you? I mean, one of the Aston Martin bottles is 300,000 a bottle, is it? So this is, well, this is particular because this is, I mean, much like your Bugatti over there, which is a, you know, one of one. This Aston Martin bottle that we're talking about, it's created by Bermore. It's called the Arc, and there are around 100 what I would call standard bottles, which sit at around 100,000 price point. 
we have a one of one. So it's, it's the same glass, but the liquid within it is unique. And then the, the cap on it is unique. It's kind of hard to describe to a podcast audience who are listening on audio, but uh, I was saying to you yesterday, Peter, it looks kind of like if you sit in the cockpit of a Formula One car, the hood of, you know, the back of the cockpit, the way it swoops back, yeah. it's this kind of shape. It's a sort of, um, it almost looks like a cycling helmet, the whole thing. There's a big cap on the top and you need a, an Aston Martin key fob to release the magnet on the cap to get the bottle open. And so the cap that we have, it's this metal, this sort of wide metal lid. It's made, the standard one is made from stainless steel. Our one is made from layered carbon. So it looks like a Japanese chef's knife. Right. It's, it's, and it's been, you know, they've been going through prototypes. We've actually had to move back the auction because Aston have been trying to produce this layered carbon for about a year now. And they're, is that right? They're they're just, so they're doing this at the Aston Martin factory, are they? It's their, uh, I think it's their engineering, but I'm not actually right. sure who produces right. it. Um, right. So, but it's, yeah, it's, it's taken about a year to try and work wow, out how to create this. So it's going to be one bottle? One bottle of this, yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's why you get the high price point. And it's 300,000. Yeah. And the other thing that fascinates me, when you're in the car world, people, of course, people buy collectible cars uh, to drive. And absolutely, there are people that will spend a lot of money on a car and they'll drive the wheels off it. There are others that choose to not drive them uh, at all or very much and they sit in collections and they will always have very low mileage. But whatever, whatever you've invested in the car, you've got the asset. It's always there. Um, so a £300,000 bottle of whiskey, what's the chances somebody's going to drink that? Good question. Uh, I think it really depends on the buyer. I would guess it's, the chances of it being drunk are pretty slim. Although, I mean, I would say, so the most valuable bottle of whiskey in the world is the Macallan 1926. It's a 60-year-old bottle, originally released in 1986. There are various different versions of the bottle. Um, I think there are four different labels. There's a fifth that, that is no one's ever seen. It was actually released as an, un, an unmarked bottle, just, compl- just glass. So I don't know about this number five, but there are four that we know of. We sold the most valuable one for 1.9 million USD back in 2019 for one bottle. And I do know a couple of these that have been opened. Um, and oh, did you sell that in Olympia? Was that yeah, at, yeah, it was at the, that was yes. the first time that we ever had, a, yeah, so it was in Olympia in front of the cars. And I remember because it, the sale went bananas and the bidding went on and on and on and you guys were moving the cars onto the sides of the rostrum <laughs> and we were still just trying to hammer through the rest of the sale and get it done. Yeah, um, I remember. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. interesting. So that is that's still it, it, at auction. That's the most valuable bottle. Yeah, that's still number one. Um, and it, I think it will be. There's one version of that bottle that will that could beat it, um, which is a Michael Dillon. It's a hand painted version of this bottle. It's, it was another one that was just released as glass, and there was an Irish artist who painted onto it. And there are two others. There's a Peter Blake version, who's the pop artist who designed the mm-hmm. um, Sergeant Pepper's album cover, and there's. One designed by Valerio Adami, who's an Italian artist, which actually will be selling this year um, in the UK at some stage. But so, I mean, people do drink these. And if we sell this Adami, there is a client, there is an Asian client who's interested in 
um, buying this to open. He's got another one, so if he gets the second one, he'll open it. So I mean, in, in, I mean, in the car world, I guess there's a there's no magic formula, but ultimately you're looking to achieve desirability, mm -hmm. and that you know to achieve desirability, you're looking at brand, you're looking at aesthetically pleasing qualities, usability, horsepower. You know, there's a combat condition, rarity. There's mm -hmm. a sort of magic combination of all of those things, and that shifts around. You know, particularly. Um, uh, different eras of cars are what's fashionable it, for periods. Yeah, yeah, what's in yeah. vogue, and also mm. it's age-related as well. I think there's certainly a sense, and we see it all the time in our marketplace, where people uh, of a certain age remember the cars of their youth, and they're now making the money that they can afford them. So that prompts them to buy 70s and 80s Porsches, for example. Mm. Um, but I mean, in, in in your world, in the in the world of fine whiskey and rare whiskey. What is that sort of magic combination? I mean, how much is brand? You've talked about sort of design and packaging, which I guess adds a certain amount of rarity and uniqueness. But in terms of brand versus quality versus drinkability, ultimately, and price. And uh, yes, and, and sorry, sorry to interrupt. The other thing is, is when you're a, when you're a layman like me, and this is true of wine. In many subjects. In yeah. any yeah. subject, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the uh, there's a perception that ages everything. Mm. So just because something is very old, that it, you know, de facto, it's valuable, and that's probably not the case either, is it? Uh, I guess. Well, the question of if, if something is old, does it make it better? It is not necessarily the case, but old, but more age and more value tends to be a pretty even. Um, Right. Is, is that just because it's rarer over, yes. if it's 50 years old, there's just less of it there's around? Just less, yeah, I mean, so there's less for two reasons. Firstly, I mean, you know, most whiskeys release at about, you know, 10, 10 years old, let's say, for a single malt. So, you know, let's say you make a thousand barrels in a year and you're going to take, you know, 800 of those barrels and you're going to bottle them at 10 years old. You've only got 200 left. So you've got less that is old and, you know, maybe you take another 100, you bottle them at 20 years old. You've only got 100 left, and very few barrels make it to being 50 or, or more. But then even within the barrel, you have evaporation occurring year on year. So you lose about 2% roughly of the volume of a barrel every year. So some barrels will never make it to 50 anyway, just because they, you know, they'll be dead before they make it there. Right. Um, so it's pretty rare. So you, know, you could have a 50-year-old whiskey that actually doesn't taste very pleasant, but it'll still be expensive just because... You know, it's it's unbelievably rare. So age, I mean, and, age and rarity are kind of then in the same, yeah, under the same. Yeah, I mean, and you're right, there is an equation of like, you know, what's what's in vogue, what looks good, and that's, you know, the packaging, but also the color of the liquid. If the liquid looks really dark, people get kind of excited by it, because it just means there's loads of wood interaction, there's gonna be loads of flavor. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, how many have been made, you know, how old is it, how many similar things have achieved that age from that distillery, and then the brand, is probably the most important thing. So McAllen kind of leads the way. And then you've got Bowmore, Springbank, Dalmore, Glenfiddich, Balvenie, and a few others, which you know really sit in the top end of the market. You know, if, if these were all bottles of whiskey, it would be pretty much just those brands you'd see in this space. It's, it's really interesting. And just going back to the question of age, in the car world, we, we sponsor the London to Brighton mm. Venture and Car Run, which is sort of not only the oldest, uh, motoring event in the world, yeah. you know, and cars only, they were only invented sort of in the 1880s. So there are very, very few of those cars, super, super, super rare, the oldest cars in the world. They're actually comparatively 
not expensive, mm -hmm. um, versus the silver Aston Martin that's to my left here, which, you know, uh, there aren't too many bedroom cars dating from around 1900 that match the value of a car made in the mid 1960s. Mm -hmm. So it's weird, isn't it? I mean, well, age in the car world yeah. actually isn't an indication of value. But also rarity is not always an indication no. of value. There used to be, you know, if you've, if you've got a sort of um, purple spotted Volkswagen Beetle and they only made two, it doesn't automatically make it no. valuable yeah. because yeah. That, not yeah. that many people wanted that particular version. Mm. And it's, you know, the balance has to be desired. That, that's where desirability comes out. Yeah. But well, and, and a car that was made in 1900 is just not a very usable car. S S same with whiskey, it's probably well, not a very drinkable whiskey. Well, though. that's the thing, and yeah. that, that goes back to my question about who 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 drinks and who chooses not to. So, I, I mean, you, I, because the risk of me, as a, perhaps only because I'm badly informed, but the risk of me going and paying a lot of money for a bottle of whiskey simply on the basis that it's old, to then take it home and decide on a special occasion that I'm going to open it, I could, I could pour myself a glass of poison that really just is not drinkable at all, right? Well, okay, so two things on this. Firstly, the age, so age is based on how long it's been in a barrel for rather than how long ago it was it distilled. It is put in a barrel, yeah. So, okay. so like the age, so let's say, it's, let's say you distilled in 1900 and you bottled in 1915, it's a 15-year-old whiskey and it will remain 15 years old, you know, even now it's a 15-year-old whiskey. But, ah, okay. but the old vintage actually, you know, the fact that it's been in a bottle for, you know, over a hundred years is going to be detrimental because you're going to see evaporation and probably the quality of the liquid is going to be compromised at this stage. So that's one of the reasons that old whiskey actually doesn't tend to hold up. Uh, another reason it doesn't tend to hold up is, um, well, in those days, blended whiskey was popular, you know, like Johnny Walker, Famous Grouse, Bells, these names, you know, that is the style that people used to favour. Um, Single malt whiskey's only really existed since the 60s and properly since the 80s. It's actually a relatively new category, and that's pretty much where the collectible market is. Okay. Um, and it tends to be more robust, and when it's bottled at high strength, it'll last a lot longer in the bottle. So, you know, if you had a high strength single malt from, you know, from 1915, distilled in 1900, it, it might be doing better now. Um, it's sort of hard to say. I think the single malts will, you know, they'll survive a lot better in the future. Uh, the other thing, I guess, like, there, most people have tasted, you know, even if they haven't opened one of these bottles, before the release happens, there'll be an opportunity to taste most of these whiskies. So, I mean, I'm in an unfortunate enough position to taste a lot of rare stuff. <laughs> um, so normally you can find someone's opinion on it before you open it. So you don't have to just take the plunge on a 50 grand bottle and you know, open it and decide for yourself. You can find out whether or not it's So, it's so when you say uh, single malt is only really, really around six years, you know, you watch the old movies from the 1950s, the first thing you do when you walk into someone's living room is you get poured a drink, don't you? And mm. it's typically a scotch and water or something. Yeah. But prior to the single malts, were there collectible, valuable whiskies? It didn't really, I guess collectible, only in so far as, you know, it'd be more like collecting trinkets. You know, it's just like these things weren't, Right. It wasn't about value increase, it was just about liking that thing and wanting lots of bottles. The value increase only really has existed probably in the last, I mean, only really in the last 15 years, I guess. It's, I mean, whiskey, even if you bought some of the whiskies we sell, I mean, here's a good example. There was a Carouzao in 1960, it was released in 2012, I think, for uh, £14,000 a bottle. And we sold one two years ago for £450,000 which gives you an idea of where the market was and, mm. and where it's gone since. I mean, in the last 10 years, it's just gone absolutely insane. So really, 
I mean, the idea of collecting whiskey, it existed in Italy, but it was more about enthusiasm. And now it's more about, you know, how can you build something that will rise in value and will be the thing that everybody else wants. Well, it's, it's interesting because some of the big distilleries for some many, for a good few years now, have been trying to make drinking, I guess, spirits in general, but, you know, Bacardi and things like the Bacardi brands and United Distillers, those big... Um, corporations, they've been pushing people and trying to make it more fashionable through advertising. I think it's quite unusual for a 25-year-old to walk into his local pub and order a, any sort of neat spirit, yeah. really. It's quite an unusual thing, but they've been making it sexy, aligning it with things like cigar smoking and, mm -hmm. and tradition and connoisseurship in general. I mean, do you think those campaigns, I guess, from the late 80s and the 90s have now sort of have a bit of a trickle-down effect or a, an upward effect I guess. I think the thing actually that's made more of an effect is like at the same time it, there were back-to-back -back shows like Mad Men and right. Boardwalk Empire. I think that it was more about this sort of like um, throwback mm. culture like TV mm. culture mm. that, that seemed to yeah. inspire it. And it's opened I mean, people's eyes to it more than anything else. It's just sort yeah, of... Yeah and like Japanese whiskey was not popular until um, Lost in Translation. That did masses for well. the industry. Yeah. It's That's in, really interesting. Yeah, so, I, I do think okay. the, the it's box what's going set on culture in, in was, popular culture. I, I mean, I, I mean, I have no data to back that up, but I do think that that's it. Must have something to do with it because well, around that time, it was, you know, Don Draper was drinking whiskey, and everyone suddenly started buying whiskey. It's no different to Aston Martin DB5s and James Bond and Amiga watches and things like that, yeah. is it? No, really, no. ultimately, it's yeah. come. I, I, yeah. I think it's in a much more sort of in a conscience, much more widely, just because of popular culture. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, that is really interesting. You just said if you were, you know, if, 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 if we've got 100 cars around us and they're all different makes and brands and they've all multiple countries of origin, mm -hmm. um, the whiskey market fundamentally comes down to, to, to three or four well-known brands that have, e that have all either come out of, what, Scotland and Ireland? Is that pretty much it? It's pretty much just Scotland. Scotland. Uh, yeah, okay. secondary market, Ireland doesn't really play. Um, Japan is way bigger, actually. Japan is... Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, to give you an idea of... So this is sort of an interesting representation of where the market is. Um, the most valuable Scotch whiskey is um, uh, the Macallan 1926, which we sold at $1.9 million. Uh, the most valuable Japanese whiskey is a Yamazaki 55, which had, I mean, it's very expensive, but it had one freak uh, result at around 800,000 USD in Hong Kong. And then the most valuable US whiskey we've ever sold is a Pappy 23, which also had a slightly freak result, but it was 53,000 USD. And, you know, from 1.9 to 900 to 53, these are your top three categories, and that's how, you know, how yeah. much Scotch leads and how, how close behind Japanese is, and then... The US is the beginning of the rest, and it's you know a fraction of the price. Don't go googling Yamazaki 55 and expecting a motorcycle to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> I think I rode one when I was a teenager, to be honest. Well, I'm I'm curious, Johnny. Um, in in the you know in the world of cars, you've got obviously from a collectible point of view, Ferrari still leads the way. Mm. Uh, then you've got Lamborghini, Mercedes, Jaguar, Aston Martin, Bentley, etc., etc. And a lot of those brands have 
built their reputation. I, and I think Ferrari continues today to be in the state, having the status that it does because they're still the only privateer team effectively running in Formula One and building fantastic road cars. You know, the Cavallino Rampanti, the brand, the image, the lifestyle that goes with it, the Italian enthusiasm and passion. You could probably sit and talk for an hour about what it is that's within the DNA of the Ferrari brand that makes it appealing today. Mm -hmm. In the case of whiskey brands, you know, you, you talk about Macallan, which is uh, fantastic whiskey. What, what's the, what are the distinguishing factors? Is it just heritage, history, um, ownership? Yeah, what makes what, 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 what makes McCallum stand out among the other brands as being? Uh, uh, well, I think there are two things mainly. Firstly, McCallum. Well, actually, three things. Firstly, McCallum released vintage statements quite early on. It was mainly because of um, the Italian market really wanted to have these vintage statements. So you can have a, a, what we call a vertical, which is when you have every year of McCallum dating back really quite a long way. It also, point number two, it didn't shut during the war, or at least not for very long, whereas most, dist uh, most distilleries had to yeah. stop and they became oil refineries or whatever else. You know, they, they used the production facility to make something to, su to support the war effort. McAllen only had, I mean, it was like an 18-month period of closure or something. Right. So this vintage statement, it goes back so far, you can really right. collect you know, way further back than you can with any other brand. And I think the third thing that makes McCallum valuable is um, it's easy to say. You know, there are so many distilleries that are hard to say. And McCallum is, it's, it's Allen, which is just a name, and Mac, which is a very easy one-syllable yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. And I think That's no matter where you are in the world, it's quite easy to say that, that word. Whereas there are other distilleries where, you know, even... Yeah. Even I struggle to say them. Yeah, yeah. And that's going to be hard to globalize. So, so it's not about the process, the barrels, the... The, the, the quality, I mean, they're kind McAllen of on a par. Is, McAllen's fantastic quality. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it's not to say that there aren't other distilleries that are the same quality, or even that you could get McAllen distilled at McAllen, but stored, or sorry, but bottled by another company. So for instance, Gordon McPhail um, bottle a lot of Macallan under their own label. It still says Macallan on it, but it'll say Gordon McPhail. Right, right. And if you buy from Macallan Direct or from Gordon and McPhail, the price differentiation is massive. It's probably 10 times the price to buy a, you know, an, an, what we call an original bottling Macallan rather than an independent bottling Macallan. That's interesting. Yeah. So a lot of it is driven, without wanting to underplay some of the sort of more subtle nuance, Macallan is a triumph of marketing. Uh, well, I think it's, it is a triumph of marketing, particularly in you know, this era of collecting that we're in now. But I think it's also, I mean, it was just fortuitous in terms of you know, various different things that they did at McCallum, which it might not, you know, they, they didn't anticipate the rise in the, in the whiskey market. I think the continuity is interesting yeah, as well, you know. I, I mean, I didn't know that at all. And, and it's, we, we see it in, in other brands, I think in particular in watch brands that have been relaunched in the last 20 years or 30 years, but have this huge gap in their history. Mm -hmm. um, and they look to their back catalogue, but there is this big gap. It's now mm -hmm. new ownership. So there isn't that continuous yeah. history. So one year feeding the next. And that's really fascinating. So sometimes that works to the benefit. So if, you know, Ardbeg, for instance, was shut for pretty much the whole of the 80s. So if, you've, if you have 1970s Ardbeg, it's kind of old style Ardbeg or if you have you know Port Ellen from before 1983 it's you know the old Port Ellen and it's been shut ever since so sometimes it does benefit the brand but I think McCallum having that lineage I mean that's it, it does help but the quality thing of course is important you know there could be a brand which with a lesser product than McCallum's and it wouldn't do so well and the style that McCallum has 
They have very small stills, which are the, you know, the copper pots that you do the distillation in, which tends to give you very oily liquid. It's sort of uh, viscous and, um, and unctuous. And they uh, mature in ex-sherry barrels with European oak, which tends to make it dark color and very rich, sort of raisiny, dried fruity, and it's not smoky. Um, so it's really approachable, very rich. You know, it's, it's luxurious, and I think that helps it, you know, yeah. become yeah. the desirable product that's, that's, it is. When you wake up in the morning with a raging hangover, you look rather unctuous. Yes. Good word, I like it. Uh, unctuous, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious, so in, within the, the, the world of auctions and I guess private sales as well, transactionally, is there much crossover between the typical buyer of wine, collector of wine, building great sellers, and, and whiskey, or has is, is, is that evolved over the last 20 years? Uh, surprisingly, they're fairly distinct, actually. Right, right. Um, I think most whiskey drinkers like wine, but not necessarily the other way around. Yeah. Whiskey's a little bit harder to approach, I suppose. So it's, um, you find a lot of wine drinkers who just can't touch it. You actually find wine drinkers tend to gravitate more towards cognac or something like that. Than whiskey. Yeah, yeah. I think it's partly because they understand the product more. I mean, cognac is distilled wine and whiskey is distilled beer, essentially, which is why I think whiskey gets lumped into this sort of um, the boys' toys category of like cars and watches and stuff like that. Um, well, I do think there's a lot of crossover there, but it, it, yeah, it tends to be that wine drinkers, they don't always love whiskey. Whiskey is an, it's an interesting drink, and the point you just made, I think, is, in, is, is an interesting point because it, it is. It's very alcoholic, isn't it? It's, you're pouring yourself a glass of, of very, very uh, intensely alcoholic uh, drink. And I suppose what I'm saying is it's an acquired taste and you've got to learn it. And I've been lucky enough to do a couple of tastings with you, which have been really, really interesting. And yet, for me, it's still quite, you know, I'll take a sip of something that you rate very highly and I know it's not cheap to buy, and I'll sip it and I'll, and you know, I've got that burning sensation going down the back of my throat. And I'm kind of thinking, blimey, I, I don't know if I can drink very much of that. Mm. And I'm not even, I'm not sure if I'm deriving much pleasure from it. <laughs> wine, wine is almost instantly. Talk, talk to me, Johnny. <laughs> no, 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 but, or, but, but I'm learning and I'm keen to learn, but wine is very accessible. That's what I'm mm. saying. It's quite, you just pour a glass of wine down your throat and it's just easy to drink. Yeah. Where, where, so where do you stand on all of that? Yeah, so what, wine's sort of like diluted cognac, isn't it? It's just a bit, yeah, it's much easier to get on board with. It's, uh, I mean, I guess that's part of the, what makes whiskey kind of interesting is that it is, it is quite alienating to begin with. Um, and it's the same, you know, when you drink, uh, probably the first time you drank wine as well, you were, it wasn't Yeah, yeah, nice. absolutely. It's yeah. not delicious like Coke or hot no, chocolate exactly. or something. No, exactly, Ribena, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And um, so there is, I mean, there is a barrier to entry where you've got to acclimatize. And that is something that I do recommend if you do a tasting is to just have a little sip without, you know, just sip and all you need to worry about is the fact that it's going to be burning and taste of alcohol. And you just need to, you know, get your nose and your palate used to that. And then you go back and you start yeah. tasting properly. Yeah. Um, but there is a point where that alcohol burn, if it's not there, becomes quite disappointing. So it, if you get a bottle that's been you know, uh, whiskey bottles are generally filled into the neck. And if you see one where the level has dropped significantly before it's been opened, so there's been a lot of evaporation, normally the alcohol evaporates first. And you'll find that it's a little bit watery, a bit flabby and not, it loses its structure, which becomes really disappointing. And also, I went to a whiskey festival in Berlin, I think it was. And I remember at the end of the day, 
tasting this whiskey that was 43%, and most collectible whiskies tend to be you know, around 50 or even higher. Um, and this 43% whiskey tasted so sort of kind of pathetic. And com- Insipid. Yeah, in comparison. And the, there is a point it's where like I think you... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you find that the alcohol becomes a really important part of the... You know, it's like spicy food. You, you kind of crave that hit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, I mean, the, the effect of the alcohol is almost the worst bit about it. Because I'd like to be able to drink more of it. But if you're dealing with, you know, whiskeys at 60%, you, you can only have one or two. But it's also, I mean, I think, I think as well, though, it, it's, it's romantic. It's a ritual. There's the, you know, there's the glass that you use. There's the choice between water and ice. There's, and, and I think it's also the approach. I mean, I've actually take, I've always drunk whiskey. Um, but I've taken it to... Mo- it was mother's milk to you, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, o- yeah. Always. Um, well, in fact, I think one of the first things I drank as a, as a, as a very young child was, was a little dram of whiskey out of the, the lid of the bottle that my grandfather gave yeah. to me. And he said, <laughs> so he, said so to my, he said to my mother, he won't want it when he's older. Yeah, how wrong <laughs> you can be. But then um, I, a couple of times I've popped in you know, for a quiet drink on my own. Just, and, and, and I've ordered a whiskey rather than having a, a glass mm. of wine or something. And I've ordered a whiskey and ice on the side. Sorry, I quite like a Sorry. cube of ice in it. Um, and just sat there for half an hour and sipped, and really sipped gently and enjoyed mm. that. And, and that tiny little bit of liquid that can last half an mm. hour, 40 minutes, and, and yeah. be a really, really enjoyable, rewarding experience. And I think there is a romance to that, as opposed to sort of coming away feeling slightly bloated and um yeah it, it is nice to have something that you know you just don't have to have like quantity wise it's small and also you can spend i mean we have whiskey sometimes when they're really special you'll probably before you've even tasted it you'll spend 20 minutes just nosing it which is where i mean that is most of the appreciation that, that, and that's what this is about that's the commonality yeah. as well with, with with watches you know a lot of people mm. like automatic watches but there are a lot of collectors that actually still quite like they manual wines wind, yeah. or where you have to set the date and mm. and it's the same warming up your car checking your own water before you go off on a drive mm. and you know polishing it and, and yeah. when you uncover it or open I've the garage n- I've never doors the oil and, check the oil and water <laughs> <in my> <laughs> no. which is why I get through a lot of cars that's why you get holes in your pistons um, yeah. uh, um, but <laughs> you're such a distraction sorry but anyway I, I do think there is that that ritualistic element to it as well and that romantic yeah. and it's slow living all of these yeah, things yeah. you know vi- I come back to it so often vinyl music it's mm-hmm. not practical by any yeah. stretch of the imagination compared to just switching on your phone and having it playing in mm-hmm. the background but that engagement with listening to music that engagement with the drink and like it's the same with wine to a degree i know you quaff as you've perfectly well described you, you sort of have neck. to quaff with wine though don't you because you, you open the bottle and you've probably got a 48 hour window before well it's done. and like, he's we, got a four hour window yeah, before he's on the next. yeah well that yes <laughs> there's no point hanging around with these things peter no but josh pullen mm-hmm. um Boss of Sotheby's Luxury. We did a recording with Josh in Geneva, and he made exactly that point. We were just touching on on a, on a few sort of um, uh, asset classes, if you like, and we talked about whiskey and wine. And he made exactly that point in terms of drinking it. Uh, you know, you can open a very valuable bottle of whiskey, and you're under no. Pr- that's something that you can enjoy over. Well, you, maybe you'll tell me. I mean, once you've opened it, how long have you got? You've got a while. I mean, the thing that matters the most is what is in the bottle. What's the air to liquid ratio? So if you have a few sips and you know you introduce a bit more air into it, then it'll still last a while. By the time you get to about halfway down, you've probably got you know four months where it's still going to be good. If okay. it's at the bottom, you've 
you know, you're going to want to drink it quite but, quickly. But in theory, you open a valuable bottle of whiskey and yeah, you can you enjoy that well. over three to four months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah you've you probably got a year uh, going on it, really. So that's, that's amazing. So in a way, that does make the drinking experience mm pretty good value for money yeah, yeah. whereas the, the point that Josh made is you buy a very very expensive bottle of wine mm. you, you pull the cork you're committed yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> it needs to be it needs to be done by tomorrow morning so it's, exactly, it's yeah. a very it's a quite a different proposition isn't it yeah that's the good thing about it I mean so you, you can also have loads of whiskey open which means that stuff like whiskey tasting is very easy to do because you know in my house at any time I've probably got about 200 open bottles so at home yeah so Lord. yeah I know so so you can just you know on any day if I want to think about you know if I want to drink a whiskey and just not think about it I can do that if I want to you know do some assessment and do some side-by-side -side comparison I can do it and it doesn't really affect you know the bottles are open anyway so you, you can just enjoy but them the bottom line you is you've got 200 bottles of whiskey to drink within a three-month window within, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> within a year that's interesting insight into your life there, so, John. Yes, some of these, some of these are definitely beyond their best. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> yeah. uh, I, w before we sort of m maybe wrap up on this conversation, which has been brilliant. I've got a question as well. Okay, go before on. you wrap up. Well, no. Well, I, I, the, the <laughs> no, you, he says. <laughs> you, yeah, we'll come back to your question. <laughs> Thank you. I saw an Instagram post recently where you were uh, identifying a fake bottle of whiskey um, that I think was in theory quite a valuable bottle and uh, you recounted a story recently where somebody bought the most expensive sort of measure shot of whiskey um, ever served and that wasn't exactly what the guy thought mm. he was buying so that's how that this opens up a kind of a whole can of worms how much of a problem is that in in the whiskey market because there that is for our audience listening to this podcast that that they this will resonate because the faking of cars, the the stamping of chassis numbers, you know, fabricating an identity for a car, uh, things not being as they should be. It, it's it is a problem. It's um, and, and you've got to be an expert, you know. When and we say to anyone, you know, do your research if you buy a car. Know what you're buying. Mm. If you look at a number stamped on the chassis. I mean, really look at it. Don't just look at it once, look at it five times. Is it right? Is there a chance that might not be original? So yeah, where, where's all that in the whiskey world? Yeah, it, it, it is a problem, fake whiskey. I mean, there, it tends to be that vintage Macallans are where the fakes most commonly arise. Um, there are some other things. It, anything that was imported into it's Italy- To your point earlier, people can work out how to spell it, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anything that was imported into Italy in a major way, that tends to be the, in about the 80s, that tends to be the highest risk um, okay. part of the market. Um, and we do come across fakes. I see them on, you know, there are whiskey auctions the whole time, you know, with our competitors. And I, I see them, you know, pop up from time to time. Um, yeah, we found one the other day. Well, when I say the other day, this was actually during lockdown. I just, I found the videos on my phone. So I posted it on Instagram. Um, and I, it was in New York, I wasn't actually there, so I just had to do this by images. But I saw that there was a bottle that looked completely real. Um, the back label looked slightly inconsistent from the front. It was a bit dirtier than the front, which was sort of unusual. And this was a Macallan Fine and Rare 1945, which is very valuable, probably over 50,000 USD per bottle. Uh, there was a slight crease in the capsule, which is unusual. So the Fine and Rare is probably the, you know, the highest spec series from Macallan. 
and to have a crease on the capsule would be unusual because the QC was mm. high on, you know, mm. on every element. So if it had a crease in the capsule, they'd probably recap it. So that's sort of strange. And then the labels looking a little bit different was kind of strange. So we looked at the color of the liquid. We happened to have a, a bottle that we'd recently sold, which we knew was genuine, that we could put side by side. And you saw that the liquid color was a little bit different. And then you're thinking, OK, there's three red flags sure. here. The liquid color being the major red flag. I mean, that's something's definitely wrong here. Um, and there's a thing you can do with whiskey called beading, where if you take a high proof whiskey, this tends to be 50% plus, um, and it works particularly well with sherry matured whiskies. If you shake the bottles, you should find that there's a little head, like a foam, like a beer, basically, like the top of a, a beer will form once you shake the bottle. If you've got a 50% plus whiskey and you get no bubbles forming or they disappear immediately, then you probably That's got a, a red flag. Yeah, it's a big red flag. Yeah, so, so we tested yeah. them side by side and we saw it. And it turns out this bottle was, it was actually a dummy bottle. So it was just a, like, you know, a window display, you know, it's, the glass is real, the label is real, the capsule is real, but it wasn't produced for sale. It was produced for display. Um, and someone had sold it as real. And so the back label, the reason it looked inconsistent was because someone had forged the back label because the dummies so the never came. the front label was original. Front was the, original, the yeah. E even wasn't. the signatures are correct. Everything about it is correct. Wow, that's... Well, yeah. That, yeah, it's a nice segue actually into the question I wanted to ask, which is just a little bit more on the topic of collecting, buying at auction, if someone's looking to invest, you know, the, 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 the percentage of people that you think are just pure investors and others that are connoisseurs. And, and also, I just want to ask a bit about the distinction between buying in the barrel and buying in the bottle. Because mm -hmm. obviously, you know, a friend of mine actually invested in some barreled whiskey and then has actually done quite well out of the yeah. investment mm. when it was bottled. Is this because I, you drink by the barrel? Hmm? You drink by the barrel, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just yeah. pop a straw in the top. Yeah, and exactly, yeah. yeah. One of those curly straws he's got <laughs> from his childhood. Yeah, it's curly <laughs> after the whiskey, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> well, but, so buying in the barrel is a bit more like, with, with a bottle of wine, you know, we talked about that whiskey, if it's bottled at 15 years old, it, you know, even if it's distilled in 1900 and bottled in 1915, it remains 15 years old forever. Whereas with wine, you know, you count how many years since the vintage it's been and wine technically ages mm. forever, you know, in the bottle. Whiskey does bottle age, but we don't really use that as a, as a selling tool. But with the barrel, if you buy a barrel, you do benefit from that, you know, year it's on year gonna aging, it's aging every year. Yeah, yeah so, so you kind of, you know, the whiskey market goes up in general. So you benefit from that, plus you benefit from the age in the barrel. And there tends to be an ex exponential price increase as whiskey ages. So, it, I mean, in terms of a place to put your money, it is quite good. The only thing I would advise is to be quite cautious about who you buy your barrels from, because, yeah, there are a lot of shady companies and a lot of people who, mm -hmm. they've bought barrels that don't exist. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you only get a transfer of a piece of paper or you know, or an email confirming. Yeah. So you don't get to go and drive it or stroke it. Right, exactly, yes. So you've got to put quite a lot of trust in who you buy from. Sure. So I would, I would do, uh, you know, a lot of research on who you're, yeah. <laughs> on who the company is you but buy from. I mean, from. all the indicators are that from a sort of just a pure cold-blooded investment point of view, it's performing, continues to be performing very yeah. well. I mean, whiskey's gr great as an investment, but I guess the issue is, and I don't know if this is the same with cars because if someone doesn't drive a car, I don't know if it's bad for the, you know, for the car industry. But if someone doesn't, if, if you know, let's say I produce 100 bottles of whiskey, I sell all 100, and everyone who buys is only in it for investment, no bottles get drunk, mm. then you know, how do you introduce the rarity in the market? If, yeah. you, you know, if you've got yeah. 100 cars and someone, you know, five of them got crashed and they were written off, 
those, you know, you've only got 95 left and it becomes, becomes rarer. And you kind of need, I think whiskey needs to be drunk and you need people who are willing to pull the corks. You, you know, it's, it's annoying because it is destructive, but you do require that element to keep introducing rarity. And I think prices will go up regardless because, you know, as something that's really only existed as a collectible category for the last, you know, 20 years, we're getting more and more eyes on the, you know, on the product all the time, and more and more interested buyers. Yeah. So, it, just by the virtue of the fact of it's yeah. expanding, Ca it goes cars rarely get destroyed. Mm. Obviously, so you know, if you if you've got a particular make or model of car, and it was made between 1963 and 1967, um, whatever that pool of cars is, whatever mm. that number is, give or take, that it, it's always going to remain the same. Mm. Um, I suppose. The, or, or you obviously, you know, very, very limited edition cars where there may be just 15 examples or 20 examples. The, the car market is so developed um, that in such a way that, you know, those 20 cars, they're all in private collections and they kind of stay there mm. and they can stay there for very long periods of time. So when one of those 20 comes onto the market, that's a really great opportunity for another collector mm. and, and the prices are going up. And I suppose because the whiskey market is perhaps less mature, as those rare whiskies go into private collections, they kind of, if they stay in those collections, they don't get consumed. Mm -hmm. It's still, it, when they do appear on the market, you're still going to see an appreciation of, or, or in the value because, yeah. know, and perhaps the opportunities to acquire them mm -hmm. are simply just going to become less and less and less. Yeah, now people so. now people are seeing them as an asset class yeah. rather than. But you can yeah. also clearly define the rarity of the product. We know how many DB5s we built. We know how many of a particular blend of whiskey has been produced. But the different, I think, what's interesting is our job in creating aspiration and greater demand. You know, so a hundred people chasing twenty bottles is one thing. A thousand people chasing twenty, there's a relative. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I think that's where the challenge and the interest comes. Mm -hmm. The, the, the suppliers are going to produce X amount, but if we can continue to do our jobs of increasing that demand, then yeah. uh, relatively it, it, they, they seem rarer anyway. And I think that's what's happening with whiskey. I mean, the, the demand increase is big. I, I think that my only concern is that the, the demand increase is, is driven partly by people who love whiskey, partly by people who love money. And there's sort of a dispassionate approach to, to collecting purely for financial interest that Exactly I, the same the yeah, yeah, it doesn't benefit the industry particularly. Although, you know, I, I have an interest in whiskey prices going up because it's good for my job and, mm. you know, good for my own collection. But I would prefer for people to collect with a genuine interest in the product, if yeah. possible. It's the same, as you say, with yeah. cars. I mean, yeah. invariably, we try to promote the cars that we're selling with a purpose in mind. So if you're buying mm. that car, you want to do a Concours of Elegance, you want to go racing, and even, you know, we're selling this um, ex Lazy Ferrari Formula One from 1991. Yeah. The dri partially what's driving demand for those cars is usability and the race meetings that you can enter yeah. and go drive them on the track. Sitting in a collection is wonderful and you can sip your whiskey and enjoy it looking at it, but if you know you can drive it as well and drive it competitive competitively mm. with like-minded people, it creates a wider, broader audience, I think. I, I guess I? that's the sort of, the thing with whiskey or wine as well is that you, it'd be like driving the car, but knowing that you only got, get to drive it the once. once. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or it'd be like looking at a Damon Hurst and knowing that you can appreciate that with your eyes, but you've got to eat it at the end. Yeah, burn it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, 
he he destroyed a load of his he he created some art didn't he and you could either buy the nft or the physical artwork and if the um if the nft was purchased he he destroyed, he destroyed the, the artwork. artwork um i was going to ask you a question super basic question actually but it interests me i bought a bottle of whiskey there might be 20 known bottles i've got one of those 20 and i don't know where the other 19 are uh how do I know that five of them have been consumed? I don't know. I mean, if you've got a bottle and you've drunk it and, you know, tossed the bottle away. Yeah. Uh, because my, my, my bottle's suddenly gone up in value, but I, I'm, not, I'm blissfully unaware. How do you, as the whiskey expert at Sotheby's, know where the quantities lie? So sometimes, I mean, it wouldn't be unusual for if, so, if you did drink one of them or if someone did drink one of those 20 that they'd plaster it all over the internet and everyone would be well aware <laughs> okay. that they'd done okay. it. okay. Um, but also there's just a regularity with which, you know, you say like if stuff goes in a collection and doesn't reappear for a long time, then the price goes up. If nothing gets consumed, then things, you know, reappear in the secondary market with more regularity. I guess you can just assume that some have disappeared for good. If, you know, let's say you see the same bottle numbers turn up again and again, but you don't see, you know, bottle number two and 12 and 18 then you know, perhaps these ones have been, you know, been consumed and disappeared. So you don't necessarily know, but it's just about the perceived regularity with which they reappear on the so market. So there's no sort of register of bottles? Of, uh, um, there are some schemes in which you can, um, if you open your bottle, you can register it as an open bottle. Right. Um, but it tends to actually be for lower value bottles. You know, right. things that, are like a really, what we call flippable price point is around the 200 pound mark. You can buy it at 200 and you can sell it at 400 often within three days. Um, so people really try and encourage opening of those bottles. And there's a, there's a company in Edinburgh that does a, it's, it's some reward scheme for opening your bottle. Because we do need to introduce some incentive for people to actually drink. I mean, particularly at that price point. You <laughs> I can, love that. Yeah. Incentive, incentive to drink. Incentive to drink, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, a good drinking game. Um, yeah, especially at that price point. You know, they release 3,000 bottles and they just keep getting flipped every, you know, every month, you tire the market pretty quickly. And we're seeing a bit of market fatigue at the moment on that kind of stuff. This is the way people collect is they go, oh, that whiskey, I like that. I'll have 100 bottles. So we see lists and it's 100 bottles of 10 different whiskeys. You know, and they say, I've got a million dollar collection. You're like, you do, but the exit on this is going to be nearly impossible. And this is what we're seeing a lot of in the US where yeah. it's just unbelievable volume of bottles and people collecting for you know just to hoard rather than to be specific about what they want i've got a last question why screw tops for whiskey and not corks uh that's more of a um i mean i know we've seen it in wine as well but yeah it's more for blended whiskey actually you uh, in in japan they use plastic screw tops Scotland for blended whiskey use metal screw, screw tops, but te we tend to use stopper corks, which is a, it's a, it's a cork with a plastic topper mm. on it for yeah. a single malt. Okay. So it is, it is cork more often than not, but actually cork's not. That was probably a stupid question, wasn't it? A little bit, but you can edit it, it's fine. You can chop it out. Don't be embarrassed. No, I'm not embarrassed, you know, I'm not embarrassed, <laughs> um, but I'm now rethinking the, the original question. Your, your yeah, bottle okay. of teachers that you have in your pocket when you go to a rugby match is not the same as mm. what we're talking about. No, here. I know. I have a question. Uh, for, I, you said about like some cars come with regularity or there's things get popular and then they you know that popularity peaks and, and wanes what's popular right now for cars what do you Ferrari see Ferrari F40 for example F40. I mean is that, not, that's, is that not like a timeless classic is that not just always in it vogue? is and it, it, I mean many would say it was 
possibly undervalued for uh, mm. quite a long time relative to other similar models that of the same performance and um, quality and, mm. and, and uh, but they made quite a lot of them yeah and then in uh, what was really Monterey US last last year there seemed to be a sudden surge in interest and they've they kind of doubled in value over a very short space of time but now everyone that owns one feels that the market's ripe and, and okay, it's time, time to, to sell. Get rid of it, but yeah. they're a, like everything else. I suppose what's quite different, if you've got 20 bottles of whiskey that have been produced or bottled out of the same barrel, they're all going to be the same, more or mm, less, yeah. unless they've been mistreated or something. Yeah. You can have 20 Ferrari F40s and they're all different. Every history is different. Some will have more mileage, some will have been restored, some mm. won't have been restored. You know, they've been better maintained. Yeah. So each of those 20 cars, each one has its own unique provenance, quality and saleability. And um, does, the, does the price depend on largely on condition and mileage? Is that...? My, I mean, mileage on modern supercars is, is important. I mean, yeah. modern anything built from the sort of 2000s onwards, people are looking at mileage. I think mileage, frankly speaking, on anything over that age is very difficult to yeah. prove anyway. It's, it's just do, about do you think people will take the clocks back on those? Or? I, when you, I mean, there was it's a time... On a modern supercar, that's very hard to do oh, because it? okay. it's all, you know, highly sophisticated electronics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, if you did a full restoration Aston Martin DB5, they would zero the mileage because the yeah. car is as good as new. And it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't frowned upon because you didn't try to prove it. I think something that's, I'd say one of the things that's driving the market more than it has in some time is, is colours. Mm -hmm. The colour combination, and if, they, if that was a rare colour combination when it left the factory and it still has that rare colour combination, that, I think that's fueling a little bit of um, extra interest in mm -hmm. certain models. Don't you think? Rarity of yeah, colours? Yeah, absolutely. And it was in uh, packaging, I think, in, in, in uh, wine and whiskey and spirits is, is really interesting. And I, I'm by no means an expert, but I, I remember when the New World wines started to become popular what would we say that 20 30 years ago you know mm. Australian New Zealand um, the American wine producers where they really made hay is that they were bringing bottles you know French traditional French vineyards have produced you know very conservative labels mm -hmm. no bottle really stands out from a shelf uh, on a shelf and and the, the new world producers were they seized the opportunity to put unusual or different labels and 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 you know when you're when your eyes are scanning if you don't know very much about wine and you're just looking for something that catches your eye and you think well that would be nice as a gift um, your, your eyes are drawn to the packaging I mean you, the thing is you can't get sucked in by the packaging mm. can you because that's a really stupid thing to do yeah. it's like buying a watch because it comes in a nice box uh, which is which is a ridiculous way to buy anything so but but packaging plays a part I guess it is part of it though because it, you know especially if I mean depending on how well you know whiskey it's all about the process of appreciation so if you have a bottle that looks cool you know and maybe the liquid inside matters less to you because you you're you know less it, in tune with what you might be drinking, then yeah. the packaging probably does mean quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, you know, they say you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I found out that in France, the book, the secondary market for books is based largely on the condition of the cover. Mm. So mm. I think it does sort of, I mean, it's, you know, it's different strokes for different it's, folks. It's, it's, yeah. like the look well, of it, it's quite it's interesting, um, coming back to the point about colour with cars, because I think we've found vibrant, quite um, 
bright colours have been more popular in recent, in recent years. Uh, you know, colours like Riviera Blue on a Porsche. It's a very vibrant blue, but it's quite a rare colour. And I was reading, um, or dipping in and out of, in fact, Breakfast at Sotheby's, the book by oh, Philip yeah, Cook. Yeah. And he has this whole section on, um, on colour and, and, and what's saleable in the art world, particularly with reference to Impressionist art and paintings. And uh, he was talking about, you know, the fact that so many of those Impressionist artists spent their time in the Mediterranean, mm. in the south of France, painting vibrant colours, whereas the British artists and British taste was much more earthy, sort yeah, of more yeah. muddy colours. And that was just based on, and, yeah. Yeah, on the environment. And, and he, they were finding at Sotheby's and in the art world in general that it was the, the vibrancy of the colour which was appealing. You yeah. know, if you can have two works of art by uh, Matisse, for example, and one's mm. got lovely, bright, fresh, strong, bold colours, and another is perhaps a little bit more yeah, muted, a, yeah, brown that one's going to win out yeah. every time, which is really interesting. I guess it's, mm. that trend has probably found its way into cars to mm. a point. I would yeah, say. It's interesting. Well, 70s colours, browns, and th even, I'm contradicting myself now, but you know, 70s colours seem to be quite fashionable as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, I think this is also the throwback appeal of now. That I th I'm pretty sure that's one of the reasons that, that whiskey's popular, because it's just people like that, you know, an old school aesthetic. And I think having a bottle of whiskey on your, you know, on your table or on your bar card or whatever, it seems to, you know, it gives you that like, you know, classic gentleman sort of style. Yeah. And it, 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 do, it does tend to be as well. People ask a lot about, you know, because it is this the boys toys and gentleman style thing. You know, do, do women collect whiskey? And sadly, we've found not really at this stage. Just by our drunken husbands. Well, it does. I mean, women actually really lead the way in producing whiskey. Most of the best distillers currently are women. Really? But, um, but it's not trickled down into the secondary market yet. We've got about two big female clients. And there was a huge sale last year, not by us. Um, but by Ardbeg, where it was a female client who bought you know, it's the most expensive barrel of whiskey ever sold. But it's pretty unusual. It still tends to be this, it's a gentleman's, you know, gentleman's mm -hmm. drink. Mm -hmm. But for younger gentlemen now, it's sort of 30s and 40s tends to be your, your right. primary collecting right. um, age groups. So a final plug then for, what's, for, for the Sotheby's whiskey world. What's, what's the next big uh, auction that you've got coming up? We have, I mean, we have auctions pretty regularly. We had 20 in, in 2022. We'll have a similar number this year. So they tend to be fairly regular. Um, the big things we've got coming up are uh, a Yamazaki 50-year-old in Hong Kong. Um, this was the first release of Yamazaki 50. It was the first Japanese whiskey to hit 50 years old. Um, and I think the estimates are around 450,000 USD to 650,000 okay. for that one bottle. Wow. Um, so which will be pretty special um, and we're doing it as a one lot only sale so it's just you know just the one bottle in the auction um, and then we have a Macallan 1926 Adami which is the most valuable whiskey bottle of all time we'll be selling that in the UK mm. um, which again is going to be pretty cool uh, and then we have our uh, Beaumont uh, Aston Martin Arc one of one the exclusive you know only one in the world bottle um, that'll be going on sale it's hard to say, but probably in around the, su the summertime. Okay. Um, so those are the big things coming up. For cool. Us. Well, Better we'll sell a car, haven't you? I've sold, <laughs> sold a house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's been brilliant. Thank you, Johnny. Cool. That's Thanks very really much. Really enjoyed the chat. 
so thank you for joining us for this uh, latest episode of The Car Show, uh, uh, Cars Stroke Whiskey, this episode. But I hope you found that as interesting as I did because I knew absolutely nothing about whiskey and I've learned more in the last hour uh, than I have in the previous uh, 40 years. So it's been great. Thank you to Johnny Fowl, Head of Whiskey for Sotheby's. Thank you to Peter Warman sitting right next to me, uh, our chairman, uh, for joining us in this conversation. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.